0: Hey everyone. Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open-source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So, how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast Join us for 3 weeks of exciting challenges where engineers, designers and content creators will use Impact framework to measure software's environmental footprint. We can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this incredible event. See you there.
1: Building data centers on the moon is very productive of fuzzies. <laughs> But not the Indeed, yes, indeed. And and I also feel like any any file I saved on the moon, I would also want to save somewhere else as well.
2: (laughs) I think that would be sensible. (laughs) It's not exactly your ideal disaster recovery location.
0: Hello and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation. In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Environment Variables, where we bring you the latest from the world of sustainable software development. I'm your host, Anne Curry. For those of you who are regulars to the show, you've probably heard me on the other side of the microphone. But in this episode, I'll be hosting. So this is going to be an interesting episode because we'll be talking about kind of science fiction approaches to climate change. What's going on? What's actually useful to us to be thinking about? And what probably isn't useful for us to be thinking about? What we might be distracted by? But it should hopefully be a very interesting episode. We have a guest today who is a also massively interested in science fiction. So I would like to introduce to you our guest, Joe Lindsay Walton. So hi, Joe. Welcome to the, uh, the podcast and please introduce yourself.
1: Hello, and Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm Joe Lindsay Walton. I'm a research fellow in arts, climate and technology at the Sussex Digital Humanities Lab. And I'm really excited to be here. I'm a relatively new member of the Green Software Foundation. And I've really come here via the Digital Humanities Climate Coalition, the DHCC, which is a kind of community-led initiative, which I guess we'll be speaking about around digital decarbonisation, around climate justice. And I also do some work on climate communication. How do we talk about climate? Bringing in interdisciplinary angles there, games, arts, literature, including... Science fiction. So this overlaps with my interest in science fiction, including the sort of post-cyberpunk fiction of writers like Cory Doctorow, who directly explore contemporary issues around tech, law and climate as we encounter them today, as well as more classic works by people like Ursula Le Guin, Samuel R. Delaney, that like to imagine life under better or just radically different social institutions. So I'm really happy to be here.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, so uh, just a little bit about me for, for people who perhaps aren't regulars. My name is Anne Curry. I am one of the co-chairs of the Green Software Foundation community group. I'm also currently writing the O'Reilly, the new O'Reilly book about green software. Co- I'm a co-author of that. It's called Building Green Software. is being published as we go on the O'Reilly website. and so I'm doing that with my fellow GSF members, uh, Sarah Sue and Sarah Bergman. Uh, and and my sci-fi, the reason why I I suspect why I'm hosting this episode today is that I'm also the author of a sci- science fiction book series, the Panopticon series. It's similar in some ways in terms of kind of time at which it's set, set and, uh, and ideas to, to Cory Doctorow. So it's post-cyberpunk. Yeah, and it covers a lot of the stuff that we'll be talking about here a lot of the stuff we're talking about here including the uh, moon Including the moon, I have a whole book on the moon. <laughs> oh, yeah, the moon is great. I love the moon. Before this podcast, I listened to just to get myself into the mood. I listened to the theme music to Space 1999, which is a, a. It was a really good show about the moon. The science was a little bit dodgy, but it in the 1970s. It was a, a good show, and although I and I and it was repeated a lot on television in the UK through the, my entire childhood, so it's constantly watching this story about people living on a kind of renegade, escaped moon. But anyway, before we start, because we can't get to, we're just going to get horribly sucked into talking about the moon and science fiction. But before we start, it's just a reminder that everything we talk about here will be linked today in the, slow, in the show notes below the episode. As you said, before we get into the sci-fi discussion, because that's going to basically take up all our time, Joe, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Digital Humanities Climate Coalition, just to give us all a little bit of a context?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So the the Digital Humanities Association of UK and Ireland launched a few months ago. And the Digital Humanities Climate Coalition, the DHCC, is one of its community interest groups. But we have been doing things more informally since about the time of COP26. And we began really out of that kind of sense that, as Margaret Atwood puts it, climate change is everything change. So every field, every domain should be exploring climate impacts and climate actions. Everybody should get their own climate coalition, and and this one is ours. So what is the digital humanities? It's an eclectic mix. One of the things the digital humanities loves to do is talk about what the digital humanities actually is. Um, You've definitely got some kind of brilliant research software engineers, some very technical people, and then you've got less technically proficient people, including me, I should say, um, who've maybe come in via a... A history angle or a, a literature angle from the kind of more traditional arts and humanities and come to the tech from that direction and i think that's really our niche is that there are all these fabulous new tools and methods appearing all the time and hopefully we can signpost those and maybe build some bridges for the less technical users so the dhcc's mission is to help everybody and especially arts and humanities researchers to understand and improve the climate impacts of our use of digital technologies. And it's community-led. You mentioned the, the, the link will be in the show notes, and I'd really invite your listeners, especially if they have any interest in widening participation in sustainable digital tech, You know, creating those on-ramps for different levels of, ex- of experience, I'd really invite them to, to get on the mailing list and the GitHub um, and get involved. As well as that side of things, we're also really keen to equip users to reflect on the, the big picture of climate change. So the arts and humanities loves to think about politics, um, ethics, about the, the, the social and cultural features of the decisions that we make um, and the perceptions that we have. And when you work in, in, in tech or, or use digital technologies, it's very easy to get excited about this or that solution or optimization and maybe lose track of the bigger picture of climate change and climate policy. A key thing for me is that the planet has a finite capacity to generate green energy and to absorb carbon. Growing, but growing at a finite rate. So there are these hard trade-offs there about how we use resources up until 2030, up until 2050 and beyond. Yes, it's complicated by innovation, by actions that might stimulate demand and investment and so on. But those trade-offs are there. And a particular legal entity might be net zero or better But if it's using green energy, if it's bagsied some of our carbon absorption budget, then that means that's not available for other things. And part of what we like to think about in the DHCC and the resources that we provide are these climate justice angles. Can anybody seriously think that we shouldn't prioritise food security, healthcare, transport infrastructure, disaster management, sanitation, biodiversity, things like that, especially in the global south? Where the needs are greater and where the responsibility for climate change is so much less. So, encouraging that kind of critical scrutiny is something that we're really keen to support as well.
2: That is very interesting. Yes. And of course, you've mentioned the links to the DHCC toolkits in his nose before. That's all great. So, I had a quick look at the DHCC stuff, and it is really interesting stuff. And the immediate thing that came to mind was something that uh, I think is the, is the key issue when you start to talk about climate and climate change and using sci-fi or uh, literature to change people's minds and move people's fo- move people forward, which is that, uh, and, and Joe, this, I mean, you're going to know more, you, you probably know similarly, you probably think about this a lot as I do, which is that fiction and driving things forward and getting people involved in things is often about individuals because there's no story without a protagonist so literature tends to be about individual action but climate change there's a big battle at the moment between individual action which we know doesn't work and we know I and mean, i don't know if you read michael mann's the new climate war about it's not a sci-fi it's he's one of the yeah it, michael mann is one of the the i think it was the I, actually,
1: I bought that book yesterday coincidentally <laughs> but i haven't read it
2: Yeah, it's a good book. It's well worth reading. Uh, So Michael Mann was the inventor of the hockey stick on climate change and everything's going to go horribly wrong. We need to do something about it. And and in his new book, in his latest book, which is well worth reading, the, The New Climate War, it's about disinformation and propaganda against climate change through, and not just climate change, but all change. Big business propaganda tends to be about trying to steer people onto individual action, which doesn't really, for these kind of huge scale changes, doesn't really work. So it's a distraction. It keeps everybody's, "Eh, don't don't drop any litter. Look over there. So yeah, it's a litter dropping as a distraction to various things in the past that that big business has not wanted us to be looking at. These days, you know, turning down your thermostat, we should all be turning down our thermostats, but it's not in and of itself going to move the dial, ironically enough, on climate change. But in fiction, you have to have a protagonist. You have to have a story, you have to have individual change, otherwise you don't have much interest. I'm quite interested in your opinion on that and also I th- think somebody who tried to, to tackle that bit with loads of issues in the book I would say but n- nonetheless did, did attempt to tackle that was Kim Stanley Robinson in Ministry for the Future. Um I don't know if you want to talk about that at all.
1: So, d- Yes this is the book that, that comes up a lot doesn't it? What Kim Stanley Robinson does in that book that's very interesting is throw everything at climate change and then actually withholds judgment about what's been effective and what hasn't. He makes some judgments, but there isn't a kind of overall narrative that says these were the key drivers, these were the secondary drivers, and uh, these these particular measures were ineffective. It's a, It's a very interesting book. I would definitely recommend it. One of the things that interests me is that it does seem that like paramilitary action is a big part of the relatively hopeful future that he paints, but it all happens off stage. Yeah, I, I was so interested in that book. I wrote two reviews of it, two for two, two completely separate <laughs> uh, venues. But your, your your really interesting point about this question of individual action and systemic action um, or systemic change. I I agree, I think 90% or 99%, maybe 100%. I might frame it slightly differently when that dilemma comes up, when we think, is this about individual action or is this about system change? I tend to like to prioritise individual action, but I frame the individual action as saying, you need to find your collectives, you need to find your alliances, you need to found your, your coalitions, work within larger organizations, work within your employment context, within activist context, within NGOs. So it is still your individual action, but you're you're looking to drive that bigger systemic change. Because I also think that while individual action can be a distraction, so can complaining about the distraction. That itself can become (laughs) a distraction. And just to bring it maybe a little bit to software, I think... Software and design is a really interesting space for thinking about how individual agency meets that kind of systemic plane. So I observe myself doing carbon-intensive things on a daily basis. I now don't use a thesaurus. I just go over to my tab and, and ask chat GPT to give me a bunch of synonyms. But these are design questions. They're not just questions of individual responsibility. There are ways of adjusting these the structures and incentives so that individual desires are manifested in, in different ways and perhaps in more sustainable ways.
2: Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, actually, because uh, one of the things that I noticed on the DHCC website was the quite correct point that should developers be developing in Python, which is 100 times less efficient than C, for example, which is something that I used to talk about years and years ago. And it's certainly true because I used to be a C developer and Python's terrible compared to C. But I can see why people moved over to, to Python because C is just so much more difficult to write. And it is certainly isn't the low-hanging fruit. You could bash your head against a brick wall there. But having said that, I used to rail against it myself, and now I rail against people who rail against it, as you say. But the Python development team have now produced tools that will compile Python to C. So you can write in C and get the performance characteristics of writing Python... Nice, easy language, get the performance characteristics of C. Now, that's the perfect solution for this. That is a good foundational strategic solution, which means that you don't have to change what you're doing. You can still write your code in Python. You get the really great performance out of it. But would it have happened if we hadn't all been moaning about how unperformant Python was compared to C? So, so to a certain extent... Individual action isn't effective, but moaning about it often is effective.
1: <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. Do you know, by the way, anything about the sustainability of this Mojo character that's just popped up?
2: Mojo? No.
1: The, the, the new programming language apparently combines I... the usability of Python and the performance of C.
2: I mean, it's entirely possible because really you, you what you write in and what actually runs are completely separate things. There is no difficulty at all, not that no difficulty, there's a lot of difficulty, but it is entirely possible to compile something which is incredibly verbose, like Python or presumably this Mojo language might be even more verbose, and compile it into something that's just assembly language, it just runs and dozens. That is the purpose of a compiler. So you just need compilers that optimize for performance. But more and more compilers are doing that, which is really good. That's the solution we want. We don't want people to change their individual behaviors. We want compilers to get better. But what we should probably do is get back to the actual thing we're supposed to be talking about today, (laughs) which is the moon and uh, data centers on the moon and also data centers in orbit. Now, (laughs) I have... As as our, our usual host, Chris Adams, would say, I have a lot of reckons on this subject, so both good and bad. So just to give you a bit of context on this as a, as a listener, back in May, we published an episode of Environment Variables called Data Centres in Space, which I was on, which discussed the possibility and the real, very real possibility of building a data centre in space to mitigate power consumption and pollution and various other things. And again, I've I've done a lot more thinking about that in, in the uh, intervening time. And we focused on the ASCEND program, which is basically a space cloud for Europe with an awful lot of finagling around acronyms to turn it into ASCEND. And basically, the idea is to move data centers into orbit. And today, we've got a link in the show notes below to a blog post from Western Digital written by Roni Shendar, which discusses the idea of, of and it's a very real possibility, not necessarily a possibility for tomorrow, but a possibility for at some point for building a data center on the moon. So just to give you a rundown of the, of the blog post, it talks about a startup company in the US called Lone Star Data Holdings, which wants to revolutionize data storage by building uh, moon based data centers. Uh, and by using the uh, lava tubes on the moon where you've got some kind of effectively although although there's going to be an awful lot of demand for these lava tubes because every plan for the moon involves using the lava tubes how how many lava tubes are there but anyway uh, lava tubes on the moon to to give you a kind of built-in warehouse with stable with relatively which actually is mostly about shielding you from space rays which are pretty horrendous outside of the earth's atmosphere and not just the atmosphere but the but the magnetic shield around the Earth. So everything's terrible out there. But the idea is you build data centers on the moon. And Chris, our excellent uh, editor for this, who you as a reader, as a listener, will never encounter it or very, will seldom encounter it. But uh, Chris is marvelous and he does all our prep for us for, for this. And, is, and he's asked us some questions that we should discuss about the idea of data centers on the moon. And the first question that he's asked us to discuss is how much energy could this really save in, for example, cooling compared to Earth-based data centres? And what impact might that have on reducing carbon emissions? And what would be the issues with polluting the moon? Joe, if you have any thoughts on that, I'll have loads of thoughts. (laughs)
1: Um, (laughs) I'm glad. So (laughs) I I asked actually um, yesterday my, my friend and collaborator, Polina Levantin, about this. Because I read the article, I'm not qualified to comment on the science, and she is a scientific one. And she just gave the wonderfully poetic answer that, have we not always already stored data on the moon? Our dreams, our our forebodings, (laughs) our utopian desires. So maybe that kind of speaks to the point about polluting the moon, maybe the idea of this pristine wilderness that we don't want to spoil. In a a, a very unscientific way, off the top of my head, and you know more about this than I do, um, the pros are... That it is cool, both figuratively and literally Mm -hmm. cool, and you've got plenty of sunlight. And then maybe some kind of co-benefits of a permanent lunar presence, a staging post for Mars missions, an opportunity to do science on the moon. The cons would include lag time. The moon is over a light second away. Obviously lifting a lot of mass and the energy and embodied carbon Im- implied in that. I don't know if they're, are they planning 3D printing and stuff in situ? I- if not, or even if so, there's a big carbon cost to putting stuff on the moon in the first place. And then remote maintenance. I would like to see you do this in Antarctica under the sea first. A lack of legal framework as well. And then just broadly, the con of uncertainty. Does a data center in low gravity, in a vacuum, with just a soup song of atmosphere, no magnetic shielding. Does Is the data going to behave differently over the years? So basically, I think it is completely bananas. I think they should absolutely <laughs> go for it. But I'm definitely, I'm one of the haters that they need to, to prove wrong. Put 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 a data center on the moon. I think uh, it, it's maybe slightly more probable, but only slightly more probable than putting a data center in Narnia. Um, the <laughs> White Witch's Curse of Eternal Winter also creates very favorable conditions for for data center cooling
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah oddly enough my my views on it are really very similar to yours uh and, and i have done a reasonable amount of research into <laughs> it and uh, it's yeah is that i really want to see a moon base i want to see well, yeah a moon. i i uh, so um, jeff bezos oddly enough has some uh, qu- quite good thoughts himself on this which is so, in answer to the second question of uh, "Won't it pollute the moon?" Bezos's position, and I tend to think he's probably right, is yes, good, because actually you want to move the pollution that goes alongside industry from the Earth to the Moon. It's uh, it, that is the purpose of industrialising the moon, is that you get the pollution happening up there rather than down here. And we love the idea and the hopes and dreams and the sunny. And I love to to wave at the smiley face of the moon, at full moon. But we know that in a thousand years time, that's going to be completely built over. <laughs> if we survive, that's going to be completely built over. And the idea will be that the Earth is better and the moon is a bit of a, a rubbish tip for Earth. And That's not a bad thing. That is a that is better than, than stuff polluting the biome. But you're you're totally right. And we said this in the last podcast. For climate change, it's it's of no use to climate change whatsoever. That the time scales are way too long, and you can get all of the benefits that you would get from a moon, a moon data center, much as I love the idea, and I really wanted to have them at some point. Through the, the Greenland and Antarctica eventually will have constant 24-7 power f- through water hydroelectric power runoffs from melting glaciers so we've got limitless power there if we were willing to use it if we were willing to be bothered to put a data center on Greenland which has has issues but much much fewer issues than building a data center on the moon and we and we uh, even Microsoft are already Building data centers for under the sea, which they find actually is very good for cooling. And if you don't poke around with them because there aren't people around, then they last longer. So you get better on you get better use out of your embodied carbon and things like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Climate change-wise, it's a crazily stupid idea, it's a distraction. Although I love the idea and I really want this to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting paradox, isn't it? That 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 we do love the idea even though we, we know it's a terrible idea.
2: Yeah, we love the idea. We've got to have a moon base. We've got to have a moon base. But...
1: <laughs> I, think, I think it's quite a common thing, isn't it? That amongst sustainability leaders, amongst environmentalists, you get this understandable, and I uh, have a lot of empathy with it, animosity sometimes towards space travel and space exploration. And I can see where it comes from. It comes from these completely un- unscientific imaginaries where we can mess up this planet and simply escape to another one. And it comes from, uh, you know, for example, within degrowth discourse, which is mm-hmm. a, a very big conversation, but which I think captures some important aspects of the climate crisis that are not well articulated elsewhere. Within degrowth discourse, I think there's an association between space travel, space exploration, and the sense that there will be an infinite plenitude of resources for us to continue to keep expanding into if we just find the technological solutions. So I can see where that animosity comes from. But at the same time, earlier in the episode, I gave that kind of big list of Things that I would like to see prioritized when we use our, our carbon budget basic things like food security, transport infrastructure uh, social connectivity, disaster management, etc I would put space science in there as well I think this this is something that is exciting inspiring worth doing one of the kind of something that you 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 wouldn't regret doing something you wouldn't regret spending resources on so I'm interested in in knowing if there are ways of separating that positive Vision uh, uh, and association of space and space exploration of separating that from the environmentally catastrophic set of discourses that it's been meshed with. What do you think?
2: Yeah, it would. It's it is a shame that the 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 degrowth movement is never going to sell anyone because it's a bit hopeless. It's it smacks of regressing to a to a world where. Uh, so it, it's, it, so we talked. We talked about the Kim Stanley Robinson book, *The Ministry for the Future*, and uh, one of the things in there was it was talking about. Oh well, no, there are no mass holidays anymore, but there are still these lovely holidays in which people go to amazing places on on hot air in hot air balloons and airships. And so the thing is, those are really crazily expensive. I can see why people resist the climate movement because it really played to that thing of. There won't be holidays for everyone, but there still will be holidays for an elite group of people. (laughs) Then, That's you're not in it. We've got to keep technology that gives something good to everyone and doesn't just mean that there's like super stuff for a tiny number of people and terrible stuff. The majority of people and they can't go on holidays. And they, we have to come up with a solution that is in some way inspiring. If we get rid, if we get rid of all the inspiring stuff, we're never going to sell anyone to get started. Although, having said that, I know we 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 slag off progress against on climate change, but we've made a lot of progress.
1: Huge um, amounts of progress. Yeah, and there's a there there are a number of perception gaps in terms of the kind of progress that has been made and the risks that that we face. Um, The IPCC science is not well understood, um, not broadly understood. At the same time, there are also a a huge number of kind of scientific uncertainties that are not well understood. Perfectly normal scientific uncertainties, a perfectly normal kind of part of scientific practice. All good science um, produces uncertainty, but these are not well reflected in contemporary climate policy. And particularly, I think, in some of the more techno-solutionist visions of the future. I think you're right that degrowth has a branding problem, and I'm interested in seeing some of those same ideas appearing under different rubrics, under different titles. I think often it's the way that the most kind of interesting, fascinating and hopeful ideas somehow appear with the absolutely worst possible labels <laughs> attached to them. But definitely, if you drill down into a lot of degrowth discourse, you'll find a variety of opinions, but you'll certainly find ideas reflecting what you're saying about uh, a, a climate transition being needing to be just and needing to be inspiring, something that has something for, for everybody and realises co-benefits in, in, in everybody's lives. And it's not just about an an elite enjoying a legacy of of luxuries while the rest of the world kind of wanders around in hair shirts, (laughs) self-flagellating.
2: Yeah, because it it struck me, say, in the Kim Stanley Robinson book, that was, he'd obviously made some effort to not write that, and yet he'd still written it. It's really hard for degrowthers to think about how they're going to pitch the message, I think. And I think it's a totally pitchable message, but it's also very difficult for them. Even things like the 15-minute city, you'd think, who would possibly object to the idea that you'd be able to like get wow. to the shops within yeah. 15 minutes walk or a quick cycle or a bus and then we regularly buy? Who could object to that? And yet it's become a horrendous political hot potato. But we, we can't really, as Michael Mann p- points out in, in his book, don't underestimate how much money the other side have to put into convincing everybody to to keep with the status quo. It's you have to be a fantastic communicator to communicate change when there is an almost limitless amount of money arrayed to to make whatever you say sound bad.
1: That's very interesting. The 15 minute city thing was astonishing, wasn't it? It got as I understand it mixed up in all these kind of conspiracy theories where people thought they were going to be contained in these like urban oubliettes where they couldn't travel any great distance. Yeah, really astonishing. And the point about disinformation, about misinformation, about greenwashing is really interesting. I think we're entering a time of great epistemological uncertainty. I even wonder if the framing of greenwashing is adequate to cover all the mm-hmm. sorts of instabilities of mm-hmm. meaning and information that we're likely to be encountering. I wrote this kind of musical glossary of terms called, oh, I think it was a greenwashing glossary or something like that, and coming up with other terms like green wishing, for example, where you are doing something good, it is improving the sustainability of your practices. But you're also indulging in wishful thinking and you're not duly weighing the actual sustainability impact of what it is you're doing and a bunch of other kind of terms like that.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of obviously the effective altruism movement, which is the a kind of the, the utilitarian charitable movement around you. you put your money where it's going to have the most effect rather than where you feel good about it. Totally, that's had a, a big proponent of that was the guy behind the FTX, the Cryptocurrency collapsing thing. So fundamentally, EA has been completely blasted away by by the behavior of FTX. But they had a very good description of how you might think about doing the right thing and the wrong thing. And it was getting your fuzzies and your utilons separately. It's about what makes you feel good. You know, it, what, it might make you feel good to do cert- certain charitable actions, but they might not actually be very effective. In fact, they might be actively bad whereas there are other things you could do that you get no real potential you, th- you get no p- internal strokes from uh, that would be very effective and uh, but yes yeah, so you, you'll get your your fuzzies which are about feeling good about yourself and your utilons, which is actually about having effective change and making effective change in, in so different for, different ways yeah you know, for, and I for you and me good. at
1: least building data centers on the moon is very productive of fuzzies <laughs> But not neutrons. Indeed.
2: indeed. Yes, indeed. Actually, and, and I also I feel like
1: any any file I saved on the moon, I would also want to save somewhere else as well.
2: <laughs> I think that would be sensible. <laughs> it's not exactly your ideal disaster recovery location. And in fact, it's Maybe I like a I. All, all the disaster happens on the moon and the Earth's fine. Another thing where if, you, if you're going to do DR, you really need to stop in both places. But so we, we better get on to, this, to the second bit. Otherwise, we'll just chat about this forever. Uh, and And the second bit, I think, is even more of an interesting link than the first. This is about uh, computing in orbit, which is about doing more, having data centers, orbiting data centers. And there's a very good, interesting blog post about how we should all move into move more data into orbit and you can analyze all the data and it's a charming blog post about if you could process data that you are seeing in faster real time in orbit you could monitor what whales are doing in even faster real time but it's what it clearly is it's a giant advert for lockheed martin and other american military companies because it is the thing that you are doing if you want to be processing data that you want to be looking at the ocean processing data real time about what's going on there that's entirely for military stuff which i don't have any particular reckons whether that's good or bad but there'll be a load of money going into it because china will be start doing it america will start doing it eventually india will start doing it russia will start doing it it is uh, an arms race, I would say. Not a. Gr- this is greenwashing. You want the new greenwashing term for this one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, let's assume it does work. Let's say that the technology... Oh, it'll work.
2: It'll work.
1: And, and under, under that highly hypothetical circumstance, right? Um, my question is still, how does this fit into the big picture? This is something that we're interested in the DHCC. How does it fit into the big picture? Are these orbital data storage facilities, are they going to out-compete the earthbound data centres that are using the dirty energy. Who actually holds the big picture of global strategy here, of addressing the urgent issue of climate change? Is it the conference of parties? Kind of, but they're mired in all these geopolitical rivalries. Is it the scientists, the IPC? Yes, but they're constrained by the remit of political neutrality and face challenges around communication. Is it the finance and markets? They're waking up to something. They're trying to incorporate climate into these risk management methodologies that they don't really play all that nicely with. Is it science fiction? Yes, we're, we're drawing in a really interdisciplinary way. We've talked about Kim Stanley Robinson throwing everything at climate change, but it is ultimately a story. I'm not really sure who does hold the big picture. And if I was to try and summarize it in a crude way, it seems that we're hoping to adjust the rules of the game. We haven't even adjusted them yet, but we're hoping to adjust the rules of the game so that goods and services and enterprises and value chains and industries and sectors and uh, whole communities and regions that are incompatible with with, with a broadly livable planet are going to be destroyed in the Schumpeterian uh, whirlwind of of creative destruction, will will crash and burn. And I think there's a lot of emphasis on the creation side of that, uh, building data centers on the moon or in orbit, but not enough imaginative, creative, realistic thinking about the destruction side of it. There's this expectation that enterprises are going to snitch on themselves. Oh, we've tested for impairment. We're reporting against this particular standard. All our assets are stranded. We're just going to shut up shop. Goodbye. So I think I would be interested in more science fictional thinking about the potential pain of switching from carbon intensive activities to the sustainable ones. Not just the focus on the kind of shiny new possibilities, but also the focus on what it's like to shut up shop.
2: Yeah. which you should read my books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. All this stuff we've talked about today, about sci-fi, is marvellous, it's lovely, it's fuzzies, but it's not green at all, and it will be no part of the climate solution, or very little part of the climate change solution. There's nothing here that is being suggested that couldn't be done vastly better on Earth. Now, I'm not saying that then none of this stuff should be done, but it's not part of climate change, and it is being washed as if it is, and it's not. So we... we we have chatted for too long and we have overrun all our, all our times today. We're now just having to uh, zip through and do our um, closing questions. Joe, if you had a data centre in space, which fictional sci-fi franchise would you reckon was best at running it? It's a good question, I think.
1: Because we've been saying the word data so much, I can't get Star Trek Next Generation out of my mind. So data, Picard, Bev, Deanna, that lot. I think it would be hilarious in general because the captains always ride roughshod over the metrics that officers present them with. <laughs> um, your download will complete in one hour, and they're like, "Give it to me in thirty minutes." <laughs> aye, aye, captain.
2: Yeah, I think the only yeah, I I, I agree with that data would be excellent running a data center, but I think it would have to be data on the, on it on his own. <laughs> I don't think anybody. and you wouldn't need anybody else, would oh, you? Good. You really wouldn't need anybody. But actually, I think the best people would be from the same franchise, the Borg. I'll just get them oh my to gosh. the
1: They're already a big data center, aren't they?
2: They are a big data center, terrible customer support. but I think there are some major folk who yeah, are no better that. at customer support than the Borg. And I, will, I won't mention their names, but we all know who they are. Thank you very much indeed. We've come to the end of our podcast, and all that's left for me to say is, thank you so much, Joe. that was really great. Thanks for your contribution and it was and for our listeners. Where can they find out more about you?
1: Thank you. Yes, it's been really interesting. Uh, I wish we could talk longer. So I think many of your listeners might be interested in the DHCC toolkit. Um, You don't have to think of yourself as a digital humanities person. I hope some might be tempted to get involved and contribute. If you're interested in science fiction, I'd encourage you to check out the British Science Fiction Association. Again, you don't need to be UK based. Um, And our journal Vector, which I've been editing with Paulina Levantin for the past few years. If you're interested in in climate communication and maybe some of the broader issues around the political economy of climate change, you can check out our Climate Risk Communication Toolkit, which is a publication of the UK University's Climate Network. And yeah, I think that's I think that's plenty to be getting on with.
2: (laughs) Thank you again. So that's all for this episode of Environment Variables. All the resources for this episode are in the show description below, and you can visit podcast.greensoftware.foundation to listen to more episodes of Environment Variables. See you all in the next episode. Bye for now.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.